Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome back to a very exciting start to season three of Stop the Killing. Before we kick off, we do want to say a huge thank you to our newest Patreon members, Carly and Jen. And of course, to all our growing Patreon community, thank you for your continued support. Without that support, we wouldn't be able to bring you yet another emotional roller coaster of a season with stories from shooting survivors, FBI agents, 911 dispatchers, and parents of victims from the Parkland School shooting. These are parents who have taken the worst day of their lives and, you know, incredibly moved forward to make positive changes for school safety throughout the US. Basically, all in all, the season is jam-packed with inspirational humans. And if that wasn't enough content, we'll also be bringing you bonus episodes on Tuesdays, covering more recent developments and continuing to answer our listener questions. So make sure to hit subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss one of those bonus episodes in particular. And finally, if you'd like to leave us a listener question, then head to Stop the Killing Stories on Instagram and send a message. Or if you'd like to support the show, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. As always, the links are in the show notes. So with all that admin out of the way, Catherine and I are so excited to have had the opportunity to record a crossover episode with the incredible team at Best Case or Worst Case podcast. We'll let them introduce themselves in a moment, but it's definitely worth saying both Francie and Jim, as well as being totally fascinating human beings, they've certainly done their part to clean up what can be a bit of a grubby old world over their long and very diverse careers. So don't forget to check out their podcast, Best Case, Worst Case. We cannot recommend it highly enough. Today, Catherine, we've got a very exciting first crossover episode. Do you want to tell us who's joining us? Oh, well, I want them to introduce themselves. All right. I'm Jim Clementi, retired FBI profiler and former New York City prosecutor, and also co-host of the podcast, Best Case, Worst Case, and my lovely co-host. Hi, everybody. It's great to be on Stop the Killing, and we're excited that we're on your inaugural new season's first episode. I'm Francie Hakes. I'm a former state and federal prosecutor. I have an expertise in national security and 
Child Exploitation. I'm also a co-host with one James Clementi of the podcast, Best Case, Worst Case. So we're so excited about having this opportunity because I have to tell you, Jim, I talk a lot about stuff that is behavioral, but you are the expert in this area. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you guys in here. Plus, we love your podcast. Well, Francie and I are so happy to be on your podcast. So yeah, let's dive right in. Well, the very first episode that we did was on the Sandy Hook massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. And I think that's where you guys can help us just add your insight into that. The Sandy Hook massacre, which occurred December 14th, 2012. And there was a kid who lived not a few miles away. Who we will not name. Yay. That's our motto. We don't name a kid. And uh, he was out of high school in terms of age, but he had uh, come from this little town of 5,000 people, Newtown, Connecticut. And he killed his mother in her bed and then left the home and went to the school, came through the front door of the school hunted down kids in the first couple of classrooms. And he shot people along the way. And in the end, uh, there were 20 children and six women killed at the school. Well, I just met with Andre Simmons last week. And I'm sure, Catherine, you know Andre. My favorite. He is the most amazing person and FBI agent and profiler. And what an incredible mind he has. And we were talking about this very subject. And when he mentioned the statistic of how many shootings, mass shootings we have in this country every year, I was blown away. Yeah. When we started working on this at the FBI and trying to say, hey, after the Sandy Hook massacre, you know, how many of these kinds of shootings are there? We looked at law enforcement reports. We pulled out real great data. And in the first 14 years of data, we had, you know, six incidents average a year in the first seven years. In the second seven years of the study, there were 16 incidents a year. We're like, wow, that's terrible. We went from six to 16. Last year in the United States, there were 61 mass murders using the same methodology that the FBI's used for 20 years. Now, I don't know exactly what the data is. I've done some research on this topic with respect to what the media calls mass shooting. And I, I have a little bit of dispute with some of the cases that are included in this, like the school category, because it includes things like something happens, it's a drive-by and there's someone in a parking lot. And that's not what we think about as like the case you're going to talk about, Sandy Hook, which is a school shooting case or what most of us think of as like the Columbine shooting, where you've got people who go to the school, students or people who were just recently students, go into a school and it's a targeted killing inside the school of students. Well, what's the criterion that you use for those 61? Yeah, I think that's one of our initial struggles, right? After Sandy Hook, we were like, hey, Sandy Hook was December 14th, 2012, January. That was my new job for the rest of my life. And you know, we were thinking, well, is this bad? And I have to tell you, the Department of Education people were saying, this isn't a problem. The media is just covering this a lot. There isn't a problem like this in the United States. Well, one is a problem. I mean, exactly. One is right. 20 dead six-year-old and six women who were working in the school were dead. That's what happened. So clearly it's a problem. And so when we were doing the research, we had to come up with a solid methodology that would work, you know, that we could replicate. And we worked with Texas State University and we put this criteria together that said, we're not going to talk about shootings that are drug 
related. We're not talking about shootings that are gang related shootings. We're not going to talk about shootings that are in the home that are domestic killings, murder, suicides in the homes, because what we're looking for were the situations that were threatening the public. So we set this methodology up and we've used the same methodology, taking out those random cases of drive-bys. It's not a school shooting if somebody happens to shoot somebody in front of a school and it's a gang-related thing. It's not a school shooting. So I agree with you, Francie. The numbers are confusing. And when you throw all these numbers out there, then you're not really looking for a way to solve the problem. You're just trying to put higher numbers on the board. Right. And by defining it narrowly, we can actually focus on that particular issue. Exactly. The 61 that you're talking about, is that 61 mass shootings or 61 school shootings? Ah, a brilliant question. It's 61 active shooters as defined by the federal government. Person killing or attempting to kill people in a crowded space. That's what an active shooter is. Under federal law, a mass killing is three or more people but there's no agreed upon, we're so close, but there's no completely agreed upon definition for mass shootings. So this is where you see the numbers different because a lot of researchers like the Violence Project, they use four or more people killed, but the FBI does not have a number cut. So any shooting that occurs that involves multiple people being killed in a crowded space could potentially be an active shooter and fits into the FBI criteria. And all the shootings that the FBI has, that 61, they're all mass shootings in our general's term, but they're not all three or more or four or more. And part of that is because of the qualitative nature of that definition. What they're trying to get at is people who go to a public place and intend to kill multiple people. Some of them are stopped before that desire is fully realized but they are still motivated in the same way or in the same general categories of ways. And they are intending to do that. So that's the intention behind using that in the definition. Definitely. When you have a family member who kills three children in their home, that's a terrible tragedy. And then they kill themselves. That's a terrible tragedy. That's a domestic violence situation. But it's right. right. It's not a public risk. And our goal, even on this podcast, even in the book that I wrote, all the work I did in the FBI, our goal is to prevent them from happening. So the way to do that is to educate the public, I think. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. 
because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Kate, I think the first school shooting that I'm really aware of was the Columbine uh, shooting in Colorado. And that was two offenders who attended school there, who went in and targeted a bunch of kids and killed a bunch of children. Horrific case. And I think a coach or teacher or both. So you go back to 999 and then you come forward here to 2022, where we had the most recent school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, who was not a student who went there, but someone who lived close by and killed a a bunch of children and teachers. It It was just heartbreaking and horrific violence. And I have to ask the question of you. And then, of course, I want Jim to answer this, too. That's 23 years apart. What aren't we doing? <laughs> what, what aren't we learning in yeah. all the study of who these people are that we can't figure out how to prevent? Now, I, look, I'm a longtime prosecutor, so I understand that preventing violence is a pretty tall task. So I get that it's not easy. But I'm just wondering what you think, Kate, about why in 23 years we haven't literally stopped the killing, especially when you're talking about school shooters, because right. especially if they go to the school they're people that are known to people. They're known to teachers. They're known to their classmates, their families. The guy in Sandy Hook was a little bit different because he didn't attend that school. He didn't attend Sandy Hook Elementary. I mean, what explains that? I don't think that it is at all a necessary component in a school shooting environment or in an active shooting discussion to limit it to only people who have some connection to the location. I mean, certainly there are situations in employment, where somebody is a disgruntled employee and they go back to their place of employment or former employment and they commit a mass shooting with the intention of killing as many people as they can. But there are plenty of other people who have no connection to the actual location who go into a mall or a store and commit a mass murder with absolutely no connection to that place. So I I don't think the connection is really what's critical. And also, Francie, just so you know, I mean, I hate to have to admit this, but I know you're quite a bit younger than I am. But back in (laughs) in January, in January of 1979, there was a school shooting and it was actually committed by a young female. And it's been popularized in media, which I'm not going to mention, but it was a very deliberate attempt to kill as many students and teachers as was possible. And that person took advantage of sort of security procedures. And I think this is a topic that we're going to get into later and using them to the shooter's advantage. 
So this has been going on for a lot longer than 1999. I mean, that was 20 years earlier than that. And we still have the problem. So I will just add to Francie's question, since 1979, why haven't we been able to stop this? When we talk about these active shooters, actually, the first one we count dates back to 66, Texas Tower shooting. And that was a sniper situation. Was that University of Texas? Mm-hmm. UT campus yes. up on the tower. He climbed up to the tower and shot a bunch of people for a long time until law enforcement could climb up there and a couple of volunteers could climb up there and take him out. But your question is, you know, why can't we stop this after all these years? I would say my short answer is because it's really a moving target in terms of what we're dealing with. The biggest moving target that we're wrangling with right now is social media and what is appearing on social media, because social media has given people who, you know, post Columbine has given them a life. Columbine was 99. It's given them a whole other life to access other people, other shooters. They're conversing on websites that are like, I want to be a school shooter.com kind of website and getting advice from each other. You know, it's not just like one channel. It's eight chan, four chan, discord, Twitch, Twitter, Facebook. So social media is undoing what we have been attempting to do for at least two decades, which is to try to cloak the identity and the notoriety celebrity of people who do this. And I think there's another issue as well that it is also very difficult and complicating. And that is that a significant portion of these are connected to suicidal ideation. 30 to 40 percent, depending on how many years you look at, 30 to 40 percent of them have suicide ideations and execute it. And that may be that they intend to take their own lives in the process of this active shooting event that they're creating, or they intend to be killed by a cop. And then that's suicide by cop. And because of that, there's really no big stick prevention options because the person intends to not live beyond it. And that, unfortunately, is a really complicating factor. Well, yeah, it's like if you want to kill the president, the Secret Service likes to say that if someone is determined enough, you know, it's going to be really hard to stop them if they're willing to die for it. Because obviously men with guns keep most of us from doing crazy things, but it doesn't seem to keep them. I think my biggest question for you, Kate, in studying this, when it comes to the kind of people, the kind of person that becomes a mass shooter, it's very hard for me to understand. I understand the motivation for an awful lot of criminals. And most people, I think, do. You understand. You can understand a drug dealer. You can even understand a lot of murders or even a domestic violence murder. I don't understand in the sense that it's fine. I mean, I understand they have a motive that at least has some rationale behind it. I feel like with these mass killings, I don't understand how anyone who is angry at one person or two people or even a school administration for whatever's happening to them or to McDonald's for however they've been treated. I don't understand how they leap from disgruntled to I'm going to kill people innocent, completely unrelated to my source of aggravation. How is that connection made? I don't get that. Well, you know, you asked a question before. I just want to put some facts on the table. Some of the research that the FBI's done shows like half of these shootings really occur in places of business. And only a quarter of them occur in a school environment. Actually, now that we have 25 years of data, it's really 20%. 
So schools are very low on the list in terms of where it happens, but also the who the shooter is. In high schools and in middle schools, the shooter is from the school almost exclusively. And in businesses closed to pedestrian traffic, you know, postal service, boxed office, you know, packing store, lawyer's office, those offices, their shooter is inside. So it's insider threat. And then the others are seemingly more random, but FBI research is showing that like 65% of the time, there's some connections maybe to the site. So when you talk about why somebody moves, you know, I think not to use Jim speak, but I think he would agree that generally we use that Calhoun and Weston view of the pathway to targeted violence, because this is not a, a snap decision. People say, oh, he just snapped. No, this is a pathway to targeted violence that starts with an ideation. They're angry about something. I think that they're brittle people in general. That's a kind of a term that I use, but they're angry about something. They fester on it and then they start to be grievance collectors. They get angry, angry, angry. And whatever that ideation is, they decide they're going to solve it this way. And maybe it's a murder suicide, or maybe it's just, I'm going to kill all these people. I think we've heard a lot of people say, we see a lot of writings that say, they're making me do this. They drove me to this, that whole concept. But the pathway to violence in the intervention part is that they have the ideation, but then they do planning and preparation. And that planning and preparation, buying the tools of destruction, changing their behaviors, changing their own self, stop taking medications or physically changing, buying the clothes that they want, becoming somebody who they think is worthy of this new person that they want to be. And that planning and preparation, surveillance of the sites, things like that, those are all signs that people can see. And that's what we school and Stop the Killing. We school people in what are those signs that you can look for, that you could report. And they strike in after that point. So I think that time period, that mental instability that comes with deciding that you're willing to do that is really, you know, that's Jim's territory, right? Well, but Catherine, when you mentioned grievance collectors and and we would call them injustice collectors as well, and this is a point for intervention because yes. typically those injustice collectors will talk about it. They will verbalize this. They will post about this. They will let people know the different people over the course of their lives that have done some injustice to them. And this builds over time. So for educators, for people out in the real world who hear people talk about these things, that should be looked at as a red flag. And that's an opportunity for intervention, whether or not they're going to intend at some point to actually commit an active shooting event. These are human beings. And we should be treating them at that point, not at the point at which they've already made the decision to go out and kill people to address these issues that they feel have been building up over their whole lives. The one thing that we have heard over and over again as we've covered these cases on Stop the Killing is the word hatred. And it's hatred without borders that strikes me. These people are using the internet to encourage each other from you know, Christchurch, New Zealand to Buffalo, New York. That seems to be the word that always strikes me is that they feel no other emotion than hatred for all. And it totally don't understand. No, I, I don't understand the target picking. I do think the internet and social media component is terrible, but also so interesting because, you know, some 20 years ago when the internet was first sort of really coming online for majority of people prior to that, we in the United States had basically eradicated child pornography 
because it was sent through the mails and the post office had done an amazing job of eradicating that transport to and from this country and to and from states inside this country. But then the internet came and child pornography started to be transmitted upon the internet. And just like you, Kate, have been talking about with these groups of people on the different 4chan and 8chan and whatever channels supporting each other in becoming a mass shooter, that's exactly what happened with those with a sexual interest of children. They started trading this child pornography, this child exploitation material, and then they all started talking together and forming communities of support, which of course eventually morphs into, yeah, morphs into offenders who are supporting each other in how they are offending and even teaching each other how to be better, more efficient, law enforcement, elusive offenders. And so I think that's interesting that the internet is kind of a commonality in some of these horrific increases in crime types. Technology will always do that, Francie. No, you're right, Jim. It can be good and bad for sure. But even at the time, the technology of the day that undercut all of the efforts of the FBI and the U.S. Postal Service was Polaroid pictures. Yeah. Pictures that you could develop instantly in the privacy of your own home or mm-hmm. den or cave or lair. And that actually allowed them to continue that process without having to acquire it from outside. That was technology. And this is our, yeah. you know, this is our bane of our existence is that technology is a double-edged sword. and. Unfortunately, many times the government and law enforcement, because they don't have the money to keep up with the cutting edge of technology, we're behind the eight ball. We never actually get ahead of the curve now because technology advances so fast and it's so complicated. But young people who spend the time in their own little environment who are closing their own walls around them, but only interacting through social media, through the internet, those people are right at the cutting edge of technology. They'll use it against us. You know, maybe this is a good hopeful sign, but just yesterday, one of the uh, AGs in New York popped out some request to say, look, maybe there needs to be some better guardrails on some of the federal laws. That's not a new story in some ways, but I think raising the profile of we are always trained to chase technology. We have a couple of things that prevent us from chasing technology solutions. One of them is that you know firearms manufacturers are protected under the law from being sued by federal law. But also, there are very few guardrails on how the moderation decisions, there's a federal statute that protects online platforms from their moderating decisions on what they decide to take down or put a stop to. And they are always defaulting to the privacy world. Privacy, oh yeah, people can do whatever they want, of course. And that's always a legal balance, privacy. But you know, we do have guardrails on so many other things that can infringe on somebody's privacy rights and communication privacy rights. And right now, the guardrails are not there under federal law to even try to go after or try to change or modify something that might be there in a civil case or a criminal case against the online. So that online is just there and it's going to continue and continue. One of the things that I've been preaching to the you know walls about to anybody who will listen is we have to stop thinking that news media is social media because social media is just that and it's going to continue. I mean, the Christchurch killer in New Zealand was an admirer of the Columbine killers. It's so sad. Yeah. The information is spread and there are little or no 
checks on that. And that's that's a problem. And we need to address it as as a country and as a world, actually, as that example tells us. So th- there's so much more we need to talk about. And Sarah and Catherine, we are so happy to have you with us. And we need you to come back next week. Absolutely. For sure. Well, in that case, join us next week for part two of our crossover episode with Best Case, Worst Case. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it if you've enjoyed stop the killing check out more podcasts from community podcast productions like this one Something is Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series. And that's when murder, mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life. 
captivating your imagination. Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.